Hi, welcome to podcast number 32, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sub. Hello. Thank you for asking me to be there. Yeah, great great to have you. So today we're going to go over two types of information, very important to Parkinson's patients. The first one is questions that you should ask your doctor on the first day of your diagnosis, or at least soon after. And the uh, other one is about quack clinics, that Q-U-A-C-K clinics. That, uh, Dr. Sue, do you want to just explain how you would talk about quack clinics? Well, these are uh, basically charlatans trying to uh, take gullible people to the laundromat. Um, Many of these are uh, very clever, um, you know, uh, people who are trying to make money, quick money, and they sell their products or their services through media channels, uh, doing little shows sometimes on TV, radio, sometimes on uh, Facebook and other social media. Um, they also permeate into, uh, for example, um, support groups. And typically, they uh, sell their wares, and they know they can only sell it for a short period of time. And during that time, they hype the issue, promise more than what uh, they can deliver, or promise things that have absolutely no value uh, for Parkinson patients, but make it look like it's going to be a very high value, um, and then um, rip you off your money and uh, you fall for it. And once you fall for it, you go get the treatment or whatever they offer and find out that it was just a total ripoff. And usually they go from one place to another. And when they close one uh, type of business, they open another kind of business somewhere else. Uh, unfortunately, uh, much of this is not regulated. Uh, especially if their promise is very vague. Uh, They are not subject to any uh, criminal proceedings in most states because um, these promises were very vague and uh, not uh, uh, subject to uh, criminal proceedings. Um, So we just have to be wary about it, and consumers have to be educated um, how to understand the quackery. Right. And uh, this is nothing new because uh, in the 1800s, there was stagecoaches would come into town selling snake oil. So this is nothing with the new generation of technology or anything. This is something that's been going on forever. And people keep falling for it because they want hope more than they could be given at the regular doctor's office. Correct. And uh, there's a few things that I was looking it up. They, and the, the buzzwords are... Uh, the Institute of, like you, they say, I'm at the Institute of Movement Disorders for Parkinson's in Colum- in, in uh, South America someplace, right. or, things, or a, a University of, of uh, Morocco, you know, some, something that sounds very official, but right. something that's very hard to, to check out is what they do. They're, they're, very, they're sort of like telemarketers. Right, exactly. I mean, or or actually, another way would be more uh, timeshare people. Right. Exactly. You know, they're, they're very they're very good, and and you're in, you're in a, in a position of 
being worried and hopeful. And that's, it, it just leads you to be taken advantage of. Right. Some, some examples that I know of uh, that some of my clients have fallen for. One example that I know is the promise of uh, stem cell infusion. Uh, this is a major racketeering that's going on um, in many parts of the world. Um, unfortunately, our neighbor to the south is uh, infamous for one or two places actually uh, offering this. But it's not exclusive to uh, the Americas. It's also being offered in Asia, in some European countries. So the idea is that um, you would get human stem cells uh, that would be infused into you intravenously, IV, and you would get this treatment for a period of um, 7 to 10 days to 14 days, and this would miraculously make you better. Uh, now, uh, from, from the tone of it, from right away, you should know that if that was the case, most doctors would be recommending it. They would not be hesitant to order this, and insurance companies should be wiring up to line up and pay for it which neither of this is true. Insurance doesn't pay for it, and doctors don't recommend it either. And the reason why it's not happening is that there's absolutely no evidence that it actually works. So the promise is just uh, very enticing because it's very, um, uh, how should I say, popular word. Stem cells are popular. People think that it's the next uh, new wave of treatment. It might be, but not the way it's being delivered from by these people. And they charge a lot of money. It's $10,000 for 10 days. And uh, they put you up in a very nice facility, which has got official name of a clinic. They have nursing staff. They provide you five-star lodging, and they give you uh, great food. And uh, they come to the airport to receive you, so on and so forth. But um, we don't even know what they infuse into you. And uh, I've had uh, at least two clients over the last 10 years or so who have gone for this type of treatment and found it uh, fell flat because initially, of course, the first few months they felt better because they were treated well and they had an overall euphoria. And uh, after the first couple of months was over, um, despite me telling them not to go, uh, the euphoria disappeared and any benefit they, are, they, they supposedly got totally disappeared after two months. So um, it's basically the same as if you went for a nice vacation, spent $10,000 on a nice vacation. I'm sure you feel good about it, um, but the good feeling is not going to last for very long and then it's going to go away. So unfortunately, uh, stem cell infusions are uh, racketeering at this point. It's really not helpful. Uh, it might become helpful in the future, but we don't know that for a fact. Um, it is being tried for other diseases, like, for example, stroke. Uh, we are trying this in part of a clinical trial where they are infusing stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells. But then the point is not to repair the brain. It is to reduce the inflammation from the stroke, the swelling and the edema and the inflammatory response that you get from a stroke is what's being looked at. But it has no application in the, in the scenario that we're talking about, which is Parkinson's disease. It's just one example. There are many other examples. There's a tanning booth person in Florida who is trying to tell everybody that if you go into the tanning booth for several days, you would get better improvement for Parkinson's, for ALS, for Alzheimer's. And that was going on for a while, this tanning booth treatment. Um, that has fallen apart. I don't see those ads anymore. And nobody has asked me about it. 
But there are many other racketeering issues. But again, Warren, you, you can give some more examples of what. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's also the clinics, they kind of tell the, pre- the person, you've got nothing to lose. It's only money. And, uh, but what they have to lose is their families get bankrupt. Right. They, they probably get divorced. They, they give up all the time of having real medicine, which to make them feel better. Right. So there's, there's plenty to lose with this. Even if you as a patient, a millionaire, it, it affects a lot of people. And, and also it keeps these clinics open, which brings other people that don't have your money in there. And it's, uh, it's just broken up a lot of homes and uh, made a lot of people very unhealthy because they, when they finally figure it out, they've been without the real medicine all that time. It's, uh, psychologically, it's very difficult for them. Right. I agree completely. Uh, another form of the same thing, what done in a more subtle way, is not to use the word Parkinson's, but to say wellness. And they don't use the word Parkinson's because if you say Parkinson's, FDA will come behind you. But um, you can use other words and other terminology that makes it sound like it's going to help with Parkinson's. Like they would say your movement will get better or that um, your overall uh, stamina will get better or some other word that connotates to you that makes you feel better because your movement, it's a movement disorder and the movements would get better and would not use the term Parkinson per se. This is another strategy that people use to push uh, things that have not been shown to be efficacious for Parkinson per se, but um, they want to get around that Parkinson story. Now, granted, there are some treatments that enhance overall wellness of people, health of people, and, and that's okay. I mean, there, there are uh, medications or you shouldn't even call them medication, food, you could say, that overall are good for you. And, you know, for example, eating uh, berries, strawberries and um, raspberries and so on and so forth, having natural food, which are uh, rich in colors, so-called anthocyanins. Um, these are the colorful things that make fruits and vegetables colorful, purple color in um, certain fruit and orange color in another fruit and yellow color in another fruit is all due to anthocyanins. And these anthocyanins are healthy. They, they make your body um, uh, resistant to um, common diseases. And that's, that's a good thing to do. It's also nutritious. But then what happens is that they try to say that they have this little capsule in which they put all these goodies in and they charge you a bunch of money to buy this and take it every day with absolutely no evidence that that's any better than buying the natural fruit and, and eating the natural fruit. Uh, this is another way to sort of um, hype uh, and try to sell things to you when there's no value added to it. Um, and sometimes the profit that they make in these things are uh, thousand, two thousand fold because it's very cheap to get these ingredients, put it inside a capsule and sell them. And uh, they're not really selling you a product that's been shown to be effective in uh, double blind placebo controlled trials um, as we do with medications. So um, it's very appealing. Sometimes it feels, oh, I'm taking something natural and that should be better than taking something that's um, you know, pharmaceutical sponsored and a drug company sponsored who are who are um, trying to do this to make money. But if you think about it, th- these people who are selling these natural products are also doing exactly that and doing it without the evidence to prove it. They're also trying to make money. 
And they make a lot of money with no evidence that it actually works. And it just simply takes advantage of the emotional feelings that um, patients have um, about this. And that's what makes this even worse than just taking um, good medication and good advice. Right. To bankrupt an elderly woman that's 90 years old right. is, uh, is about as low as you can get. Yep. But as an aside to the, uh, you mentioned about talking about it as a food, mm-hmm. all the vitamins that's sold in the United States are, are labeled as food. Right. They, have no, they have no oversight by the FDA. The only oversight they have is they make sure that there's nothing on the label that says will cure a disease. Correct. So everybody taking it, you're on your own. And, it's prob- and if there was anything really in there that would cure a disease, the drug companies would have snatched that up a long time ago. Correct. Exactly. I mean, that's the point. I think if there was really value added to it and it was really helpful for a disease, the drug companies wouldn't have sat on it and, and not done anything about it. They would have immediately tried to market it. Uh, most of the cases, there's no value added for these additional things. Now, granted, some of the generic medicines are just as good as branded products. So whenever possible, using generic medicines, I have no problem with it. I recommend it. And that would reduce the cost for patients. And that, that's a very good thing to do. And we all look for the days when a patent expires and, and the product is available cheaper. There's no, no doubt that that is a great thing. But that's different from touting um, a product which has no value, meaning it has not been proven to be healthy or effective in a particular disease, and then saying that it is so, which is a totally different false claim, basically. Right. And, and sometimes you can even go to jail for making such false claims. So uh, one has to be very careful when you buy these products. So. Right. And if you think about it, you're going to a country, you probably wouldn't even trust the restaurants to give you a meal, but you're having them operate on you. Right. Because there's no, there's no monitoring for cleanliness, no oversight for, for your qualifications or or your equipment, or your procedure, but you're trusting them, but you probably wouldn't trust anybody else. So it's just because they're good talkers. Right. Is what it is. This is a good segue to one great example. This happened several years ago, almost 10 years ago. Um, one particular surgeon in California decided to uh, partner with a hospital in China to take several Parkinson patients to undergo brain transplants. Um, And the idea was that they would travel to China and receive transplants in their brain of cells that are dopaminergic and they're derived from very specific cell banks and uh, that was obtained from uh, fetal uh, tissue that they were specially harvested and grown and so on and so forth. Anyway, long story short, um, several of these patients, after they returned to the United States, developed complications. Um, One of the patients actually died from the complication and came up for autopsy. And very interestingly, when the autopsy was done, they actually found in the brain tissue that didn't belong in the brain at all. For example, they found hair and teeth growing in the brain and had obstructed the flow of something called the cerebrospinal fluid, CSF, because it was growing almost like a little tumor. And this happened because this was not properly uh, vetted. The, the tissue that they were putting was not 
carefully examined to make sure it's dopaminergic cells. It actually had other types of cells, uh, which led to the growth of hair and teeth. Uh, and that's why this problem happened. So this can happen. Again, I think Warren's point here, which is uh, right on the money. Uh, we need to have uh, oversight. We need to have careful monitoring for any of these experimental therapies before somebody jumps into it. I wouldn't uh, trust myself to send any of my clients to a study where it's not carefully monitored and carefully wetted uh, and, and under uh, regulation so that it's done properly. Right. And that's, it's hard enough to get every, every provider in this country, to be honest and effective at what they do. And that's with a lot of oversight. And right. it's, it's hard enough because there's, there's people that, that one guy a couple of years ago that gave chemotherapy, he had, he had empty bags that he gave the, uh, the caregivers. Right. And he charged thousands and thousands of dollars for it. And they went, they went with no chemotherapy. So right. it th- does happen. So I'm sure it happens more in an unregulated environment. Right. Good. So uh, you have anything else to add to that, Dr. Sue? No, I think the message is that um, there are a lot of uh, charlatans out there, a lot of false promises being given. I think it's important that you weigh the information very carefully. Don't run with it and don't be very gullible that somebody comes and gives a great uh, sales pitch. You just buy into it. Take your time, look into it, investigate it, ask your doctor about it. If the doctor doesn't encourage you double things second time, you know, think about it. Hey, you know, maybe there's something to what the doctor's saying. And if you're still not convinced, go for a second opinion or a third opinion before you really buy into something that is extremely out there, out on the left field. It's, it seems very, very enticing to jump into a treatment that seems to promise a lot, but then something that sounds too good is usually not true. It's not good. It's usually something there's a problem with it. That would be the message that I would say to the listeners. Right. And the, the answer, the cure for Parkinson's is not going to be on Facebook. Right. Or an 800 number. They're not, not going to pay for an 800 number or an infomercial to sell, sell the cure. Right. You know, that's, they'd get much more money doing it the right way. Right. Okay. So the next uh, thing to talk about is Parkinson's diagnosis questions. When, uh, when you first get your diagnosis, most people are very uncomfortable at that point. So I could see why they don't want to have a long discussion with the doctor. But soon after, there's a lot of questions they should ask. And most people don't. And uh, the more I talk to people, the more I realize how little they, they ask the doctor or how little they know. And it's a, it, it could be much easier to handle your disease if you ask a lot of questions. So, uh, Dr. Soup, is it all right if I ask you a couple of these questions and see sure. how it goes? Sure, go for it, yes. Okay, so let's assume I've just got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what is Parkinson's disease and what causes it? Right. So, Parkinson's disease is the second commonest neurodegenerative disorder. So, it's a degeneration, meaning cells in the brain are slowly withering away, dying. Um, and the reason why they're dying is not clear but it's in the same family as other diseases that also have similar degeneration, like Alzheimer's disease. And uh, in this particular case, uh, one set of cells in the brain that produce the hormone dopamine 
seem to be uh, mostly affected. Of course, there are other cells that are also affected, but the predominant symptoms are from the lack of dopamine. And it's a progressive disorder. Slowly, it gets worse over time. And uh, that's the nature of this degenerative disorder. Now, the second part of the question, why does Parkinson's occur? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. And that's the honest truth. Despite uh, the disease having been described for over 200 years, we haven't found a clear answer as to why. Uh, we think it's a combination of genetic risk factors and environmental risk factors. And that's not saying much because um, we don't know what those are and how you get it. So when most patients ask me, why did I get this? I say, we honestly don't know. And um, we still have to do more research to find out why um, you got it. Now, occasionally, it's not very common, less than 5% of the time, there are multiple family members who have Parkinson's disease, uh, usually like a father and a child or brother and a sister. They both have Parkinson's disease. Then in that case, uh, we can try to look for genetic causes, meaning a mutation in your gene that may be causing the Parkinson's disease. But then again, it doesn't say much because you, your next question is, why did I have the mutation? And the answer to that is still not known because that could be inherited or it could be spontaneous. In other words, another family member could have passed it on to you or you might be the first person to develop this mutation. And uh, either case, it doesn't change what we do to manage you or treat you. It may have some consequences for your children and so on and so forth, but that's beyond the scope of what we are discussing right now. Okay. Uh, I know there's risk factors in uh, Parkinson's I've read about, mm -hmm. but is there anything I could have done in, in my past that maybe I could have avoided this from happening? Right. This is a very common question I hear, you know, what can I do to stop the disease? And the answer is, again, we don't know. If we did, then we would, we would already be telling everybody that they should be doing X, Y, and Z. A common, um, common thing that most patients ask me is that, can I just exercise and get over it? So I don't take any medicines, nothing. Can I just take, do exercise? Exercise must be good. So I should be able to get, over, get out of Parkinson's disease by just doing more exercise. The answer is no. Uh, that's been tested and it's been rigorously tested. Uh, there are major big trials that spend literally billions of our dollars, our tax dollars were spent on finding out whether exercise by itself is sufficient to overcome Parkinson's disease. So uh, it, it's not true that you can get, get exercise to overcome Parkinson's disease. Just like we talked earlier about vitamins, nutritional aids, food, etc., that would make you overcome Parkinson's disease, exercise also doesn't overcome Parkinson's disease. However, exercise is good. Being fit is good. It helps uh, control the symptoms to some degree and helps enhance the benefits of Parkinson medication. That's true. But you can't do just exercise and not take any medicine. Medicines remain the number one treatment that's available. Now, the second part of your question, what could I have done bad before that I can avoid doing now? Or what did I do before... Uh, or what did I not do before that I could do now that would make my Parkinson's go away? And the answer to that is nothing. There are risk factors, as we already 
sort of mentioned, like for example, environmental risk factors, uh, living in rural area and drinking well water is thought to be a risk factor for developing Parkinson's disease. But then again, if you start drinking bottled water from today, it's not going to make any difference because whatever exposure you got to is already exposed. It happened in time. And we have no way of going back in time and you know undoing some of the things that happened before. And, and the related question I hear is that, um, should I be uh, giving my children and grandchildren bottled water and they should not be drinking well water because well water is contaminated, et cetera. That also is not true. We don't know whether everybody who drinks well water, everybody who lives in rural area actually develops Parkinson's right away. We don't know that. So there's nothing proactively that you can do and there's nothing retroactively certainly that you can do to change the risk why you got Parkinson's disease. Um, there are certain things that you could limit or reduce. For example, um, consumption of alcohol. Um, we know that in Parkinson's disease over time, the part of the brain that allows you to walk on a straight line, what we call uh, balance organ, cerebellum, the part of the brain that's in the back of your brain, is affected. So as the disease progresses, you will have some more and more cerebellar symptoms and we will develop what we call ataxia, which is difficulty walking the straight line or having balance issues. And unfortunately, alcohol affects that part of the brain also. That's why when the cop pulls you um, to check you for drunk driving, they make you walk the straight line is because alcohol causes toxicity to the cerebellum. So in general, limiting or reducing the amount of alcohol is beneficial in Parkinson's disease. Also doing exercises to improve your balance is good for Parkinson's disease because we know your balance is going to get worse over time as the disease progresses. So those are simple things that you can do to improve your quality of life. But otherwise, uh, most Parkinson's patients should do whatever they like to do, enjoy life, eat whatever they want, do their activities, uh, live normal lives. And the goal of Parkinson doctor is to maintain a normal, healthy, full and complete lifestyle with no limitations whatsoever, except for these minor things that I just mentioned. Okay, uh, I see you just gave me a diagnosis of Parkinson's, but you didn't do anything. What, how, do we, how do you know it's Parkinson's? Should I get a second opinion? Right. So this is another frequent uh, question. How come you didn't do any tests? How come you didn't do a blood test? How come you didn't do an MRI? I brought you a DVD filled with pictures. You took 10 seconds to look at it, and then how come you know it's not Parkinson's? or it is Parkinson's. So the answer to that is fairly simple, is that none of the tests that we have today, MRI, CT scan, uh, none of these things that are commonly done actually shows Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is a biochemical defect, it's not a structural defect. In other words, nothing in the picture will actually show that you have Parkinson's disease, at least not yet. We don't have technology that are good enough to show these things on an MRI. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. There's newer techniques that are being developed, some of it being developed here in Hershey itself, that might help us in one day figure out in a picture what's going wrong with the brain. Um, but unlike things that go on in a picture, which is structural, anatomical, uh, in Parkinson's disease, biochemical, so a chemical defect, you can't see it very easily. So normally, for most Parkinson patients, uh, we don't need to do a test. The tests are not helpful. 
uh, they don't show anything. Now, we might order a CT scan or an MRI to rule out other diseases, to exclude other diseases. And that, again, is rarely done. It's not commonly done. Uh, it's not required either. Uh, again, blood tests are rarely required. Um, most of the time, it's, again, to exclude other illnesses, thyroid disease, things that might masquerade at Parkinson's. We might check you for that. But other than that, there's no need to keep doing other tests. Uh, so the diagnosis is really clinical based on the history, how your disease has progressed, and we may ask you a lot of questions um, that are really probing, uh, asking you about how the symptoms began, when it began, what part of the body it began, how did it progress over time, and we may ask questions to your caregiver or your spouse or uh, somebody who came with you about your memory, about your sleep, about your smell function, and these are all little clues to tell us whether you have Parkinson's or you have a different disease. And having that sequence in, the, in, the, in, in a way that it should fit the picture of Parkinson's disease helps the clinician decide. Now, that alone is not enough. You still have to do an examination. And typically, we examine the patient to, by asking them to tap their fingers and turn their hand back and forth and so on and so forth. And we do a complete neurological exam, and that tells us whether the patient has Parkinson's or not. Sometimes things don't fit, and if they don't fit, then we become suspicious. We order more tests, or we might just simply say, I'm not sure what you have. I have to observe you for the next six months to a year to see what happens. And that's, that's normal. That's expected, and that's the correct answer. If you're not sure, observation over time will give you an idea whether the Parkinson's will develop more uh, clear symptoms. And so then the doctor is able to make the diagnosis more clearly. So uh, these are common questions and there's a good questions, um, but those are the answer. Okay. Uh, ever since I, you told me last week that I had Parkinson's, I, I, I'm freaking out. I can't mm -hmm. cope with everything. Could, could you tell me what I could do? Right. So anxiety for the diagnosis or being frustrated about the diagnosis, not having enough information or having too much information and just becoming anxious about it is, is very, very common. Um, we try to alleviate this. So uh, at least in my practice, when people come and I make the brand new diagnosis, we give them a lot of information. We spend anywhere between 45 minutes to an hour during the first visit. I usually give them resources to talk to. Uh, for example, they can talk to my nurse uh, or they can call a common resource, the American Parkinson's Disease Association, APDA, Information Referral Source, INR Center is here at Hershey. Anyone can use it. It's a public resource. You can call and you can leave your questions for the, uh, the coordinator who can try and answer as, as many questions or provide you resources that you can read yourself um, and, and understand it. In general, my sense is that that level of anxiety usually dissipates over time. Uh, and it's something that you just have to be patient with. It's, it's not great news to hear about a disease unexpectedly. You didn't expect it and you went to a doctor with a little bit of tremor and the doctor says you have Parkinson's. It's, it's sometimes a shocker. And we as physicians try to alleviate that anxiety level to some degree, and we give you as much information. So the more information you have, more you know about the disease, more you understand it, more you are open about it with your family, then the better it is. Now, if you try to hide it, then your anxiety becomes worse. 
if you try not to share it with family members or tell your um, next of kin, then it becomes harder because now you have to every time go around, hide your symptoms and you have to, uh, you know the truth, but you don't want to share it with others. That becomes problematic because you become more tense and anxious and more tense and anxious you are, more your symptoms are going to show. And that's the way it is. So the more open you are, more transparent you are, more um, in sync with the diagnosis you are, the easier it is for you to cope with the symptoms. It's easier said than done. Uh, so most patients who need that kind of support should call their doctor or should call the APDA. And another resource, which we're talking right now, this podcast, uh, Warren is available and our blog is available. And people who are hearing this podcast and who are in this situation should certainly take advantage of the podcast and the website. Uh, they certainly can post questions and try to reach out. Many um, people who are in the support groups are very, very willing to talk and willing to share their experience and say, okay, here's what you need to do. Go talk to this doctor or talk to this nurse or find this resource. And usually just talking it over for, uh, with somebody who's already gone through the experience will reassure you, make you feel better. Now you have to be careful who you talk to because sometimes you talk to a person who um, is not vetted who's not in the best position to give you advice may not be the right thing. So one of the best way to do that would be to go through the APDA or to your doctor's nurse and find out who they recommend that you talk with. Um, Or they can certainly take advantage of this website and this podcast. And uh, Warren and I will work to figure out who, who can be a good resource. Okay. And when I was in the waiting room, I saw all these people that were in terrible shape. Is that, is that my near future? Right. Well, um, so that's a complex question because it depends on whose waiting room you are and who you're seeing. But let, let, me, let me take that question. So in, in most scenarios, not everybody in the waiting room has Parkinson's disease to begin with. Parkinson's disease can be mixed with other diseases that look like Parkinson's disease, what we call Parkinson plus syndromes, and uh, can also be secondary Parkinsonism. And many of the times, the patients who are not doing well don't have straightforward Parkinson's disease because they are much harder to treat, much more difficult to treat. And while the lay person sitting in the waiting room, especially with a brand new diagnosis, does not see the distinction between one form of Parkinsonism and another form of Parkinsonism, it's important to realize that everybody in the waiting room is not, doesn't have Parkinson's disease to begin with. So that's one first caveat. Second caveat is that everybody's Parkinson's disease is unique. So just because your friend or your neighbor or your uncle or your grandfather had a Parkinson's disease that was a spectacularly negative uh, experience doesn't mean that you're going to go through the same experience anyway. And that's because A, everybody's disease is different. B, We also have exceptionally good treatment available, which is different from what was available many decades ago, two decades or three decades ago. And third is that we as doctors and providers have become much more knowledgeable how to manage the disease. So when we do better management, the outcomes are better. Most people with Parkinson's disease live normal lives. They're able to enjoy their family, their grandchildren, get in activities that they normally engage in and live full, 
wholesome and happy lives without needing to worry about major complications, etc. Now, do still complications occur? They do occur, but they are relatively fewer and we have better ways of treating it. So we are able to keep people at, in the homes and with their families for longer periods of time and fewer and fewer people are requiring nursing home placement and long-term care, et cetera, uh, especially if they have standard Parkinson's disease and have been well cared for for many years. Okay. My uh, grandfather, mother, and brother, now I have it. Does that mean my children are going to get it? Right. Um, I sort of answered this it, to some degree right. uh, that there are genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. It's rare. It's less than 5% of the population that have it. If it is the case that there are multiple members of the family have it, yes, we should do genetic testing. It is available. Um, there are five well-characterized forms of Parkinson's disease that can be easily tested. However, uh, the test is expensive. It's uh, roughly about $2,000 to get a panel for all the five known genes. And many insurance companies don't pay for it. And the reason why they don't pay for it is that knowing this doesn't mean that we can do anything about it. So just because we find out that you have a gene doesn't predict that your child will get it or your other family member would get it. That's the first problem. Second problem, even if you knew they were going to get it, there's no treatment or there's no therapy available to treat this person before they get their symptoms. So uh, insurance companies are very reluctant to pay for it. So it's difficult to get the insurance approval to get these tests done. Having said that, if we do have the luxury of getting it tested and the insurance company pays for it, we can certainly order the test and get the results for you. Now, the getting the result is a double-edged sword. Yes, you found out that you have a gene in your family. Now, the next question that makes you worried is who in the family is going to get it? And these are people who are completely asymptomatic. Are we going to go test them? Are we going to spend a couple of thousand dollars to find out whether they're going to be at risk for getting the disease? A. B, even if you get the gene test in them, is that going to tell when they're going to get the disease? So... These are difficult questions, and we should address that one-on-one. Personally, I don't think it's worthwhile thinking about it because right now we don't have any treatments to procrastinate the disease or slow down the disease progression or treat people who are asymptomatic. So I don't think it's worth worrying. Mm-hmm. And the last question, something you'd probably like to hear, is how can I help speed the cure? Right. So I think this is a... Good one. I think people who think forward-thinking people who, who think like that are very, very important for discovering the proper treatment for Parkinson's disease. The ultimate answer to that question is um, all treatments that we test has to be tested on patients and Parkinson's patients. The final proof of the pudding is actually testing it in people and showing that it actually works. So no matter how many things I discover in my lab or somebody else discovers in their lab or a drug company discovers in their lab, we're testing it on mice or rats or monkeys or whatever, or in a cell culture dish, ultimate proof of the pudding is only after you test it on patients. So the number one thing that I would encourage newly diagnosed Parkinson patients to think about is, can I volunteer to be in a research study? And again, when you're talking about a research study, this should be a FDA approved um, highly regulated, uh, good study that is being done in a 
reputable place where people know what they're doing, that kind of study. And there are many such studies going on to try to discover treatments for Parkinson's disease, including here in Hershey. Um, and so if you are in that bandwagon and you're willing to volunteer, participate, you should consider participating. And that would make a tremendous difference in the field. So that's the first way in which you can help. Second way is advocacy. I think all Parkinson patients, once they get diagnosed, they should be aware that the advocacy that you can make on your own behalf, fighting for your own disease is very, very important. Nobody else is going to fight for you. You are the one who's going to pitch for it. You're the one who's going to, to garner support for your disease. What does that mean? That means writing to your con congressman, writing to your senator, and asking them to increase the support for Parkinson's disease research is a very, very important uh, aspect of how we are going to uh, find cures for Parkinson's disease. The largest investor in Parkinson's cures is our government, the NIH, National Institute of Health. They literally spend several billion dollars on Parkinson's disease. And the only way to protect this is by advocating for yourself. So every Parkinson patient should at least make one phone call once a year to their congressman and at least write one letter to their congressman and senator saying that please continue your support for Parkinson's disease research or, or you say please support Parkinson's research. And believe it or not, it matters. They actually have people there sitting and counting the number of people who call them about a particular disease when bills come for um, voting. And the more people in the local constituents who support a particular bill, the more likely that your congressman or senator is going to vote in support for uh, funding. So it's a simple thing. It doesn't take a lot of time. All you need to do is to write a postcard or write a small letter or an email or even a phone call, just calling your congressman's office and saying, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm your constituent, I live in such and such a place, uh, please uh, consider uh, supporting uh, any bill that comes in front of you that supports Parkinson's research. So that's the second important thing that um, I think every Parkinson patient should do and easily doable that will help find a cure. Last and number three, which is also important, equally important, is that financial contributions. So if you can make a financial contribution in some way or the other, either you yourself give money or you ask somebody else to give money uh, to support research, that's very, very helpful. And local support is more important than national support. Uh, all support is good. So if you're able to contribute to a national cause, I have nothing against it. But most of the time, supporting locally, uh, an area where you live, uh, supporting research locally is cardinal because that's how research progresses. To give you an example, if you live in New York City or you live in California in Los Angeles or in San Francisco, the volume is so high. There are so many millions of people that if you contribute there uh, locally, and that's what happens, most people contribute locally, it stays locally. Now here in central Pennsylvania where the communities are dispersed in space, um, there's not enough number of people to sufficiently drive um, philanthropy to support good research. So we have to do it collectively and we have to put our resources in one place. So I would say try to contribute locally to your local centers, local APDA center, for example, the American Parkinson's disease chapter that's here in Hershey. Uh, try to support that cause because we need that kind of local support. Now, there are some couple of things that you can do for that. Uh, many times your contributions are matched by your employer. 
if you work for a large company like Walmart or um, I don't know, some other company, pharmaceutical company, for example, Johnson and Johnson, you work for them or for a bank, they often match your contribution. So you give $10, they also give you $10. And that's a what's nonprofit match that they're allowed to do. So if you are able to garner sufficient money like that, and I've had some of my clients do this, for example, recently, one of my clients had their 60th wedding anniversary. And uh, she, she and her husband both said, we don't need any gifts. Uh, we were going to make a charitable contribution to the local Parkinson research cause. And so everybody who came for the 60th wedding anniversary, they all pitched in a certain amount of money. They collectively pooled it and they made it all a contribution to this, this individual's uh, previous employer and they were able to match it. And uh, that, that turned out to be a substantial amount of uh, funding to support uh, Parkinson's clause. So to summarize three ways in which you can help, number one, volunteer yourself to be a research subject if you can in any Parkinson's study. Number two, advocate for yourself uh, by asking your uh, congressman and senator to support uh, causes that uh, will support Parkinson's disease. And number three, um, do philanthropy yourself or promote philanthropy for Parkinson's research. Uh, and, and I guess the last part, which is obvious to you all because we're talking to you now, is to be engaged in the community. Do the things that you're doing right now, which is listening to this podcast, coming to support groups, supporting people like Warren, who's doing great work, and uh, being engaged, I guess, is, is the way in which I would say. Good. Sounds real good. Do you have anything to add to that? We kind of spent a lot of time on this, but it's important. Right. You, you have thoughts on it, Warren? You know, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, just, just every time I see somebody that says they were diagnosed two, three years ago, but never even talked to a support group or didn't even know anybody that had Parkinson's in the area, it really bothers me. That's why I'm, I'm doing this because I, I know how important it is right. to, to meet people. Because if you feel like you're alone, it's a, it's a very hard to understand disease and you really need to be around people that have it. Agreed. Agreed. So that's fantastic. I think we covered a lot and uh, we've done a uh, comprehensive view on both those topics. So mm-hmm. hopefully we get these questions and uh, comments on our uh, podcast. That'd be great. Yeah. And so we encourage people to come to our website and uh, post your questions and uh, hopefully we'll answer in a future podcast. Great. Thanks for coming, Dr. Sue. Thank you.